On today's episode, Anna is covering the mysterious death of Phoebe Hanschuk. Welcome to Crime Bar. Um, hi <clears throat> hi good day to I you have, i have a ma'am. lot of yogurt raisins stuck in my teeth right now oh i've been yogurt t- raisin oh yogurt like the yogurt cu- yeah i've been like tongue punching my molars to oh. try to get out before the story begins well it's not necessary to get it out before the story i might choke on it it's a choking hazard oh yeah i think excited <laughs> they work their way out Okay, so what story are you doing? Well, so this is a case that was ruled a suicide, even though so many, including myself, believe that it was very clearly a homicide. And over the years, I've read numerous articles and listened to a few podcast episodes about this case. And every single time I'm just like left dumbfounded that it hasn't been reopened and been covered by the homicide unit. But what is it? Um, it's the story of Phoebe Hanschuk. No, I Hans don't, Juke. I don't know it. <laughs> um, this story takes place in Australia and to this day remains one of Melbourne's most insane unsolved mysteries. And I know it's spelled Melbourne, but I've when I went there once for like a week, they said that the locals call it Melbourne. <laughs> so, yeah, that's how you're supposed okay, to say cool, it. Okay, cool. Very cool. Yeah. <laughs> and if you say it with an Australian accent, then it's Melbourne. Melbourne. <laughs> well, that's well, not, that not, that not like not. a little pirate, an Irish pirate. <laughs> Irish? <laughs> Melbourne (laughs) or Scottish that's not it's definitely just not Australian I don't know how people do that but all right well anyway anyways I have never heard it so I'm really excited it's I feel like it might ring some bells we'll see but um, I'm certain that it really I'm pretty sure okay Mm -hmm. because I've heard about this one throughout the years and anyways I got tons of my information from the website phoebehandstrick.com which contains everything from uh, press from this case received to photos and articles gathered throughout the years. It feels very much like family runs it. Oh, okay. And everything else was basically found on crimereads.com. Okay. Phoebe was born on May 9th, 1986 in Melbourne, Australia. Taurus. Making her a Taurus like me. And her parents called her Tiger Cub, and that is completely fitting because not only was she born in the year of the tiger, which is mentioned throughout the website that her parents, I, th- I think, I believe it's her family runs the website. Mm. They always make it make it very clear she was born on May 9th, 1986, the year of the tiger. Mm. And it that was fitting because everything about her just seems very fierce. And she was described as a wild child who just wanted to do and explore everything. Mm. Since she was young, she had a beautifully active imagination and she created a very rich fantasy world in her head. And not to make this about me, but uh, I think that's a Taurus thing. I was going to say that sounds like you (laughs) as a child. Because I made up this entire fantasy world in my head called Weirdo Land and I kept that place up and running for a very long time. (laughs) So she grew up in a house that had this steep slate roof. It roof, <laughs> roof, roof, um, that she would climb on top of so that she could just stare up at the sky, look up at the stars. 
Uh, she just literally loved to climb. sounds like you as a child. She loved to climb trees. My parents call me tree climbing princess. And I mean, she was cooler than I was though. <laughs> People <laughs> gravitated towards her. According to PhoebeHandshake.com, she had an almost insatiable appetite for socializing. She was popular at school and loved her friends. She was described as extremely sensitive, caring, and compassionate with a playful sense of humor. Phoebe was an incredibly loyal friend, and the people in her life knew for a fact that they could always count on her. She was fiercely protective of her family and had a very close relationship with her brothers and especially her grandma, Jeanette. Not only was she super likable and popular, but she was also an incredible athlete. One of her teachers said that they had never met such a strong child. She was on the basketball team and like something I thought was great was she was always a really good athlete. She was a great player, but if anyone ever fouled her, she would just lose her mind and take it up like a million notches and just absolutely destroy the other team. <laughs> and the other players and people watching would be like, like what it got, what got into her? Like, why doesn't she always play like that? But she had like this, I think this need for justice. And if you were to do something dirty, like, you know, oh. do her wrong, mm -hmm. she would just be a maniac and yeah. she would have to prove you wrong. And while it seems that she had everything in the world going for her, Phoebe battled depression and anxiety. Mm. And like many teens with depression, she started experimenting with drugs and alcohol to help numb like the constant anxiety and overwhelming lows. At just 15 years old, she started taking ecstasy and speed and she hung out with a very tough crowd. Mm. According to MarieClaire.com, she actually ran away and squatted in the city with an ex-prisoner, his partner, and their baby. And this lasted about eight weeks before she finally returned home. There is no information about how she met this ex-prisoner, but I think it's when she was partying and, I don't know, they were part of the tough crowd that she often, you know, did drugs with. Yeah. So obviously her parents were beyond concerned when she returned and they knew that they had to do something about her mood swings. They were very attentive parents and they cared a ton about her. Um, she was prescribed medication to help with her depression and she regularly met with a therapist. And unfortunately, things didn't quite turn around for Phoebe after this. Uh, at the age of 16, she began to secretly date a teacher who was twice her age and this was at the same time that her parents' marriage was failing. So I think she was clinging on to something that felt secure and yeah. safe and kind of like a father role almost. Yeah. And it sounds like she only dated much older men from here on out. Mm. When Phoebe was 23 years old, she started dating 40-year-old Anthony Hample. She was working as a receptionist at Lindley's Godfrey's Hair Salon, and Anthony would come in regularly for haircuts. He was also really close friends with the owner of the salon. Anthony was smart. He was handsome. He hung around people with a lot of money. He was the son of retired Supreme Court Judge George Hample. And I think the fact that he grew up and associated with people that were so different from Phoebe was very attractive and alluring to her. Yeah. And it doesn't sound like anyone really took them seriously. Her friends thought- like as a couple. As a couple. Yeah. I think they were just like, you're 23. And, yeah. and if you know Phoebe, she has like a piercing on her lip. She's definitely a wild child. And then he's this wealthy man that comes from a prominent family yeah. who has an insane job. Yeah. He uh, had an event planning company and he did very well for himself. And her, her friends just, they met him and heard stories about him and they drew the conclusion that they'd probably hook up a few times and then she would move along, but they were very wrong. 
Uh, after about five months, Phoebe moved into Anthony's apartment, and that was in October of 2009. Oh. And they were just a classic case of opposites attract. Yeah. Anthony wanted his house spotless. His house cleaner said that he liked the place to look like no one even lived there. And Phoebe was, she was just a mess. She was a mess of a human. She was a painter. She loved clutter. She didn't like living in a space that felt untouched. So she was more like eclectic. Yeah, she was like more like me where it's like all your stuff around you. wanted you. to be cozy you and to lived, be cozy. look lived in and feel lived in. Exactly. And they're like to, a normal person. Like a normal human, really. <laughs> and in my opinion, there's a difference between liking a clean space and needing your home to look like a museum. And if I walked into a man's place and it looked like a sterile hotel room right after the maids come, then I would I would turn around and walk out because I would think that that need for control would cross over into the relationship. Yeah. That's a red flag to me when a man has, or a woman, anyone, like no posters on the wall or no art on the wall. Everything is just clean to the point, has a function. It's just weird. Yeah. I don't know. Like, some, It seems kind of extreme. It does. It feels very extreme. Very museum-like. Exactly. And one day Phoebe actually left work in this panic state because she was freaking out about an ink stain that she had made on the carpet and she was she was desperate to get it out before her boyfriend got home and saw it because God knows what he would do or say to her. Ugh. And she was very open with her therapist about how much he put her down for even the smallest everyday mistakes. And this made her feel stupid around him. She felt helpless around him. Yeah. Anthony made comments later about how Phoebe struggled every day with doing even the most simplest of things. <laughs> my god just a condescending asshole yeah um phoebe's mom natalie became very concerned with her daughter's insecurities surrounding her relationship she said that phoebe began to drink excessively to help with her social anxiety whenever she was around anthony and his friends all of his friends were attractive and wealthy and this intimidated her beyond she was already insecure around him. So I think that like his opinion of her was obviously not the highest. At least he didn't verbalize the nicest things about her. So she assumed that the people that he ran, you know, in a circle with probably would have the same judgment. Yeah. So I think she just felt very insecure about just being herself. Yeah. That's so sad. It is so sad. And Anthony referred to Phoebe's drinking as the monster. He said, it was just that monster was the alcohol, you know. She was coping with her depression. She really was. She was with the best doctors and the best therapist. Everyday alcohol, she couldn't. Just brought out this monster and the monster won. Even though I have a tendency to not believe anything that comes out of this man's mouth, um, it sounds like she would become a very different person when alcohol was involved. Mm. Like she was just a rage drinker. <laughs> and for a man that likes to be in control of everything in his life, this is a recipe for disaster. Phoebe had begun to withdraw because she knew that she just wasn't the right fit for him and he wasn't the right fit for her. She called her mom one day and said, mom, I just don't know what to do. I love aunt, but it's not working. Lindley Godfrey, who was Phoebe's boss at the salon, was also a close friend of Antony's and said, he was a very controlling person and he was a friend of mine. I felt sorry for him because I feel he was in love with her and he was losing her. But like many toxic relationships, she would pack up her things and leave only to be convinced to come back. Ugh. And Antony and Phoebe broke up and got back together something like four times within oh. a span of six weeks. Oh my God. It was just, a, it was which like we've all been there like to a degree. Yeah. And like those six weeks became a cycle of breaking up, 
drinking too much, hanging out with a tough crowd, people that Antony liked to call lowlifes, <laughs> then a dramatic reconciliation, which then would lead to her using prescription drugs to numb the pain, and then the cycle repeated itself. According to CrimeReads.com, Antony woke up early to get a workout in before heading to work on December 2nd, 2010. He had an event company located in Richmond, and supposedly it was going to be a very busy day full of meetings for him. That evening around 6.05 p.m., he drove into the basement parking lot of his luxury apartment building, Valencia. He parked his Range Rover and then used his key fob to take the elevator up to his 12th floor apartment. When he opened his front door, his bull terrier Yoshi greeted him like normal. Yoshi had created his usual mess while Antony had been at work. The couch cushions had all been pulled out like off of the, the couch. They're all over the, all over the ground. Everything's torn up, trashed. And for some reason, this never bothered Antony. I was going to say he has a dog who trashes the place, but he can't have a girlfriend that makes an accidental ink stain. And that's like something I took note of is no one around him was allowed to create a mess or create any sort of chaos in his mind. Yet his dog, who isn't trained at all, would tear yeah. apart his apartment and it was totally fine. So he gave more patience to, which I understand giving more patience to an animal in general, like having a lot of tolerance for their behavior, but not more than the girlfriend that you love and live with for almost a year. Yeah. Antony noticed that Phoebe was not at home. And this was concerning because he saw that her keys and her handbag were sitting on the kitchen counter. He knew that she wouldn't just leave without her things because while you could leave the apartment building without keys, There would be no way of getting back in. Every single entrance required that special key fob. The next thing he noticed were a series of very strange notes that had been written on post-its in the kitchen. And none of the websites that I looked at said what the notes said, but it just seemed like it was a bunch of just jumbled up words. None of it made sense. He knew these notes had to have been written recently because the house cleaner had just come the day before and cleaned the kitchen top to bottom. And I was also thinking you were there that morning. So that's your reason for thinking that they were recent? Yeah, that's weird. It just was strange. When he walked into the bedroom, he was confronted with a very chilling sight. Antony later said that it was like a shrine that was on the bed. There was a picture of her cat, a photo of Antony and Phoebe, tons of scribbled notes, and there were candles still burning. He saw that her hair straightener was still plugged into the socket in the bathroom. And in my head, I'm like, that's not a shrine. That's a couple of photos and some candles lit. Like, and then the straightener was un, like plugged into the socket, perhaps suggesting that she had just left. I don't, I feel like it was dramatic for him to refer to it as a shrine. 40 minutes after Antony came home, Phoebe's dad called her phone. And if you recall, her phone was left on the kitchen counter. Yeah. According to her father, Len, and his phone records, he called Phoebe's phone at 6.51 p.m. and Antony picked up his call. But according to Ant, he did not hear her phone ringing and he did not pick up the call. But he insists that he called Len on his own phone because he was wondering if Phoebe had possibly gone to see her dad. That's such a weird discrepancy and it's a very bizarre lie and the website this is from crimereads.com didn't specify which one was the truth but the fact that they said len and his phone records show that i'm gonna i'm gonna go with that. that yeah regardless of what was the true story when the two men spoke on the phone 
Len told Antony that he had been trying to get a hold of his daughter because of dinner plans that she had made for the three of them for that night. Apparently, Phoebe had made reservations at the Golden Triangle to celebrate her dad Len's birthday. And Len was... In the three of them? Uh, it was Antony, Len, and Phoebe were supposed okay. to go to this restaurant. And Len was calling to find out what time they were supposed to meet. There was something bizarre about that to me because he's calling at 7 p.m. to ask when they're supposed to be meeting. That night? That night. I don't know. I mean, I don't I don't think anything about Len is suspicious, but it's also... It just seems like an odd it just situation. Was, it just feels weird to me. Anthony told Len that Phoebe was not home and mentioned that she had left her phone, purse, and keys at the apartment. And this was deeply concerning to Len because just the day before... He and a few other family members had received a very strange text from Phoebe. And I'm, I'll read it for you right now. Hi, family. I'm in bed and about to sleep. And when I wake, I will transform into the most incredible human being you've ever seen. Not. I will go to hospital. It's safer there. And I hear the special tonight is tomato soup. Delicious. Nutritious. I love you all very much, but not enough to send an individual text. Sorry about that, but time is sleep and I must be on my way. Merrily, 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 life is but a dream, XO. Oh my God. I know. Like I feel like that text like captured like me her mental state unraveling. And she sent that to a bunch of family the day before? She sent it the day before to her father, her mother, her mother's partner, Antony, her boss, her two brothers, her grandma, and two of her girlfriends. Okay, I'm a little bit confused then because that's a concerning text, but then the next night he's just calling to be like, hey, what time are we doing dinner? It feels weird. Yeah. It feels very weird. Her mom, Natalie, had been boarding a plane um, after working for nine weeks in the Western Desert. So she was heading home finally after nine weeks away. And when she got that text from her daughter, she immediately calls her mom, Jeanette, and asked her to check on Phoebe. Jeanette had just texted Anthony a couple hours before asking how Phoebe was doing, I think because she was already concerned about the yeah. text that she had just received. And he had responded at 8.32 a.m. saying, Thanks, Marm. She is sleeping beauty right now and not the beast that she was. Resting now, and I've explained now, is the time to heal. Then when she feels okay, we'll work out a plan. But after her daughter's panicked call, she wanted to double check. So she gave him a call at 1035 a.m. He basically told her, oh, I didn't even read the text that Phoebe sent. And that he wasn't concerned because Phoebe had been sleeping peacefully when he left for work that morning. And he told her that he would swing by the apartment to check on her. So Jeanette is comforted by this and texts Natalie, who is Phoebe's mom, saying that Phoebe is fine and Auntie would go by and see her. But he didn't do that because he got that call from her at 10.35 a.m. and he didn't get home until after 6 p.m. that evening. So after receiving that text and knowing that other family members are worried, Len is freaking out and telling Antony that he should report her missing. But Antony refused. He said, they don't listen until 48 hours have passed and she'll be back by then. And I read this and I'm like, everything about this man is guilty. Yeah. <laughs> you don't want to refer your girlfriend as missing because you know where she is. Yeah. If your partner isn't home and 
Well, also, it's it, if you think someone's having like a mental break or poses a danger yeah. to themselves, like that's a very different thing than just I came home and I don't know where she is and everything's been fine. Exactly. It's two totally different things. But you're sending unhinged texts the day before and then you're claiming, I didn't even read them. There's no way. Wait, he sent an unhinged No, she text? did. Phoebe oh. sent the, the text that I, I, yeah, the day before and everyone is calling Anthony saying, we're really concerned about her. And he does the rebuttal of like, oh, I didn't even read it. I didn't take the time to read that, yeah. which is bullshit. Yeah. And now he's acting as if this is totally normal that she's not there, yet all of her belongings are on the counter. Yeah. His behavior is very suspicious. But with that being said, Phoebe and Anthony clearly had a volatile relationship and her behavior was often unpredictable. So he could have been thinking that this wasn't as unusual as her family seemed to think it was but I think that's just giving him the benefit of the doubt. This is when everyone in Phoebe's life began to call one another and contact anyone that they thought might know anything about her whereabouts. No one had seen her or heard from her that day. So I guess I'm confused about the 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 text that she had sent before. Mm-hmm. She included her boyfriend on the text thread, yes. but is he saying that he wasn't physically with her when he received it or she, he, or he was? The only thing he said to the grandma was, I didn't read it. But he said that after texting the grandma that like everything is fine. So the grandma texted him saying, is Phoebe doing okay? That was that morning at like eight something AM. And then he responded to her saying, yeah, she's sleeping peacefully, basically saying that like, he went off to work. She was, she's fine. We're going to figure out a plan for her. But he said to her then later when she called at 1030 that he didn't even read the text. So maybe by from saying the day before. from the day before. So he could have just been saying that we're working out a plan because this had been a long process of her abusing alcohol, having these meltdowns, taking prescription drugs. And then, you know, the whole breakup, it was chaotic. So I think he was referring to that as working out a plan for that, not necessarily even addressing the text that she had sent the night before. I believe that he read the text. There's no way he did not, but that's just what he said in the article that I read. Yeah. Um, The only person that had any recollection or had recently seen her was a close friend named Bren, and he had gone for drinks with Phoebe that Monday night, and he said that Phoebe had been on a bit of a bender. So that was the only tidbit that anyone was able to volunteer. How many days before? I think it was like two days before. Oh, okay. Everyone close to her is panicked, except for her boyfriend, Anthony. He decided to call up the Golden Triangle, which is the restaurant that he was supposed to go with um, or go to with Phoebe and her dad. And he ordered takeout. He, He gets his food. He buzzes the delivery boy up to his 12th floor apartment a little after 8 p.m. When the delivery boy gets the door, he asked, man, what's going on here? And Anthony asked him what he meant. And the delivery boy replied, the front of the building is swarming with cops. There's police cars, ambulance. I had to prop my bike up the street. I hope your dinner isn't cold. Anthony puts his dinner inside and then immediately goes down to the lobby of the building. He walks straight up to a detective and asked what was going on. Sergeant Andrew Healy told him that a woman's body had been found in the garbage compactor room. Anthony said, oh no, my girlfriend is missing. Could it be her? Oh my God. (laughs) The most unnatural, could it be her? (laughs) Are you kidding me? 
and proceeds to pull the concerned boyfriend act and tells him he's been calling his girlfriend all day and that her cell phone was broken. So he tried calling her on their way home throughout like their home phone throughout the day. Lie number one, or uh, probably lie number 10, um, because her father called her phone just hours before and Anthony picked up that call. Yeah. He goes on to tell the detective that she was taking medication for her depression and that he was very worried about her mental state. He said that even though he was worried and called her a few times after seeing that she wasn't home, he just figured that she'd turn up like she normally does. So he's all of a sudden displaying this concerned act and then making excuses for not... Everything about it is just not... Guilty. Yeah, it's very guilty. And also to volunteer all that information after Amanda said they discovered a body, I just feel like... Do you know what I mean? Like I mean, if that is what he was... Obviously, you've already made up your mind about... I made up my mind, yes. And all that, and I understand that, but I haven't heard all of the story. So I I would think that it wouldn't be weird to volunteer all of that stuff if a woman's body has been found in your building and all of that is true. I'm just she hasn't been there and she does have uh, mental um, concerns, all that stuff. So I'm just looking at him as guilty (laughs) through that lens. So it's making it hard to see anything else. Detective Healy asked Anthony if Phoebe had any features that would stand out like a tattoo or something. He said that they had matching tattoos on their wrists and hers was on her right wrist. He mentioned that she also had a piercing on her upper lip. After giving this information, Antony heads back up to his apartment. During this time, Detective Healy looked over the photos that had been taken of the dead body. He noticed the woman had a tattoo on her stomach, something that Antony had not mentioned. So the detective takes the elevator up to Anthony's apartment to ask him whether or not Phoebe happened to have a tattoo on her stomach. Anthony said that she did. Anthony showed the detective a few recent photos of Phoebe. Detective Healy knew that this woman had the same features as the woman that had been found dead in the trash room. The detective said later that he didn't have any phone reception in the apartment, so he had to go downstairs to notify the other police. When he returned, he and his team were ready to search the apartment for any clues. The first thing that stood out to them was a broken wine glass that was next to some blood on the floor. They never dusted those glasses for prints, by the way. They discovered the strange post-it notes next, and after searching the rest of the apartment, the police searched throughout the entire 12th floor. During this time, Antony called his mother and stepfather to tell them the news. He then called Phoebe's father, Len, to tell him that his daughter was dead. He told Len that he should call his two sons and have them all drive over to the apartment building as soon as possible. Len didn't want to tell his sons what had happened over the phone, so he said, just come home. While he waited for his sons, he called his ex-wife, Natalie. She picks up the phone and immediately asks, what happened? Have you found Phoebe? Len replied, I hope you're sitting down. She's dead. They found her near the rubbish bins at the apartment. Natalie fell to the ground and sobbed uncontrollably. Her boyfriend had to come outside and carry her into the house. They soon notified the grandmother. The building concierge was the one to make the 911 call that night, which in Australia is actually called triple O. Mm-hmm. So I should should I so I should say they made the triple O call. South Melbourne police shows up to the Valencia apartment buildings at 7.14 p.m. Detective Healy was a part of that team. When they arrived, the concierge told them that she she just couldn't go back into the garbage room, so she handed over the keys so that they could ex- access it on their own. 
After quickly assessing the crime scene, the police told the concerned onlookers the girl had committed suicide and put herself down the rubbish chute. What? They just decided this. They look, took one look at her and decided it was a suicide. And that she, after killing herself, she put herself in. She put herself in the trash chute and fell from the 12th floor. The apartment manager suggested that they look at the security footage to get a better idea of what happened. That makes sense, you know? He even told them that he had been having issues with the CCTV lately and that the police would need to look at the footage sooner rather than later out of fear that it would be taped over. The looping time was too short on the system and the machine would quickly record over even like the newest footage. The manager recalled that the police didn't seem interested and ignored his suggestion. What? Literally back-to-back things. It reminded me of the Kaneka Jenkins case where they're saying, just look at the footage so we can find her. And they refuse. It's the same situation where the manager says, just take a look at the tapes. And then they don't. And they never got their hands on them, in fact. Oh, my God. Right away, this was treated as a suicide and not a homicide. At 7.20 p.m., an ambulance was called. It is not clear who called the paramedics. Christy Cook was one of the paramedics that arrived on the scene. When she spotted the body and attempted to take a closer look, a police officer wouldn't allow her to enter. And this goes against literally everything that she had been trained to do, but she was in an impossible situation because the police are in charge. For whatever reason, the police in charge wouldn't allow her in the room, so she was forced to observe Phoebe from a distance from the doorway. What? Literally. Nothing. N- if it's not a crime scene, then why would you be picky about people coming in? Nothing about this makes sense. And I think that's why this this case has remained such a mystery and been such, I mean, frustrating is like the understatement of the century, but it's been so disturbing to everyone that's close to Phoebe or hears the story. It's an example of just the police, the court system, everyone failing her and her family. So Christy Cook, the paramedic, Um, She saw that Phoebe was lying on her back and she had cuts on her hip and thigh. She also noted that Phoebe's right foot was in in a natural position, possibly meaning that it was fractured. Her pants were around her knees, but there was no evidence of sexual assault that she could see from the doorway. Her skin had a bluish tinge to it, which happens when oxygen is deprived and the body will start to appear blue. And that can happen, I I tried Googling of when that takes place, but that can happen even before death. (laughs) So it can happen right away. It can happen hours later. Hmm. The coroner ruled that Phoebe climbed into the chute herself anywhere between 12 and 7 p.m., which is incredibly broad. Her body had been discovered just after 7 p.m. The thing that upset Christy the most was the fact that no one even touched Phoebe at any point after the discovery of her body. Not one person touched her to see if she was warm or actually still alive. What? So so like the coroner said, she she went down the chute anywhere between 12 and 7. Her body was discovered right after 7. So no one touched her body. She could have been still alive. I can't even understand. No, that's why this case is so upsetting. Nothing is okay. Nothing makes sense. Not a single medically trained professional took a look at Phoebe's body. Many individuals that have seen at the scene, Mm. many individuals that have researched her death extensively believe that Phoebe might have still been alive when the ambulance arrived. 
It wasn't until hours later that crime scene specialists entered the room. They stated that based off of the trails of blood that were found throughout the garbage room, that Phoebe had survived the 98-foot fall down the chute. The compactor blades caused deep gashes all over her body. She then must have crawled around trying to find a way to exit the room. And there was a single bloody handprint that was on the uh, door handle. Why can I not think of the name for that? Doorknob. Um, But she was unable most likely to grip it because of the blood loss. And she was not able to exit. Wow. I was picturing in past apartment buildings that I've lived in, the trash chutes, just the chutes open out to a like a huge dumpster exactly and that's what i was picturing in my head i did not realize there were blades involved Mm -hmm. or that her body was not actually found inside of a dumpster i guess is what i was i assumed the same thing when i first read that and then i read like excerpts from from crime reads this um true crime writer named robin bowels wrote a book about everything i'll get into it but she explicitly talks about the blades and the fact that that was what caused that she didn't die from the fall she died from the blades and then blood loss blood loss from the blades. from the blades so the blades didn't even kill her it was the, yeah just the most miserable slow awful death 90 feet also, 98 feet an incredible true crime writer named robin bowels wrote a book about phoebe's death called into the darkness After extensive research, focusing heavily on the crime scene itself, she firmly believes that Phoebe was murdered. Phoebe had promised her mother that she would come over to help decorate the family home the next day. It was her little brother's 18th birthday, and she was very close to her siblings. Not only that, but it was her best friend's birthday the following week. And knowing how involved she was with her friends and family, no one believes that she would ever kill herself before those special events. And that wasn't she going to go to dinner for her dad's birthday? She's going to her dad's birthday that evening. Yeah. Her best friend's birthday. Her uh, her grandpa was turning 70, I believe, the week after. It was like there were so many special events that even though she was depressed and she was on medication and she was definitely seeming to deteriorate mentally based off of that text, no one ever thought that she would commit suicide. That they, her family and friends always took priority over anything that she was experiencing. And Robin Bowles, the author, talks extensively about this, but there was so much for her to look forward to that she had committed to and would be there for. So this on top of- It just doesn't add up. It just doesn't add up. Apparently, Phoebe's grandfather, Lauren Campbell, was a retired police officer, and he went ahead and conducted experiments that the investigators should have including experiments to figure out how she could have gotten herself into the chute on her own. Yeah. Lauren got a hold of the specific chute manufacturer and had him build a fake chute. Lauren then had two of Phoebe's friends see if they were able to climb into it and fall feet first. One of the girls was able to fit, but the other one couldn't fit because her shoulders were too broad. That's another thing I was going to ask is because oh, yeah. I'm remembering the ones that I had in my apartment buildings, mm-hmm. like a, a person, uh, an adult could not fit could there. Not have fit. This chute itself was two feet by nine inches wide. What? I don't understand how you can fit a body into that. I don't understand that at all. I did like a measurement converter. Yeah. Because when they said it was nine inches, I was like, I can't include this because I think this is incorrect. 
And then I looked at more articles to back it up and it said two feet by nine inches wide. Wow. That and nothing makes sense <laughs> for her. So her arms to fit her arms would have been behind her head, like raised up above her mm -hmm. rather than down by her side because the opening of the chute is incredibly narrow. Robin Bowles discussed that discussed the grandfather's findings as well as the coroners in her book. The coroner suggested that Phoebe had attempted to slow her fall using her hands, but Robbins stated that Phoebe didn't have dirty hands, which is impossible because the trash chute itself was disgusting. Like yeah. it was an absolute mess. Yeah. There was no way Phoebe would have been able to get her hands down by her sides. And on top of that, the speed in which she was traveling wouldn't allow you to even think about using your hands. Like as she's falling down, she fell approximately 98 feet at around 52 miles per hour. Oh my God. Uh, you wouldn't even be able to process the quick. It just would be done. You also couldn't fit your arms down in that in two feet by nine inches. Yeah. Phoebe's blood alcohol level was 0 0.16, which is three times the legal driving limit. She also had a sleeping pill called Stillnox in her system. The combination of the two would have made climbing into the chute on her own nearly impossible. Like she was, I mean, people suggest that she was kind of like in a intoxicated trance. So if you're going to use that as a suggestion to back up the fact that this was a suicide, then you cannot, like, how can you climb into a chute like that? Yeah. Yet police coroner Peter White declared that she committed suicide while in an intoxicated stupor. And as if this isn't enough, I saved the most incriminating bit of information for last. There were no fingerprints on the handle. The handle oh. that had the blood print on it? The No, the shoot handle. Oh. the There were no prints on the shoot handle or anywhere around the shoot. It had very obviously been wiped clean. So because yeah, that makes no sense because so many residents are touching it. Exactly. And it. And if she were to have climbed in, her prints would have been on it. She has no way of just leaning, wiping, and yeah. then sliding oh down. Yeah. It should go without saying that if a woman is in an intoxicated stupor, she was able to somehow get herself into the trash chute, her handprints, her fingerprints would have been all over that handle and all over that opening. This entire case is just another example of an inadequate investigation by police. Phoebe's body was not tended to upon discovery. Investigators failed to seize the apartment building CCTV footage. They did not conduct their own experiments to see if it was even possible to get into the garbage chute alone. Her grandfather, her retired seven-year-old grandfather, had to contact the chute. It's, it's disgusting. Anthony insists that he had absolutely no involvement in the death of his girlfriend and all he ever wanted was to help her mental health and drinking problem. He was never considered to be a suspect and Phoebe Hanstrick's death was officially ruled a suicide. Later, like months, I think it was like six months to a year later, the coroner suggested that there is a possibility that this was not a suicide, but in fact, probably just a freak accident. How? An accident caused by Phoebe being in a trance, like a trance-like state due to alcohol and sleeping medication. And they think that she would crawl into a trash chute and slide on down. 
Okay, sometimes after a cocktail or two, when I want a good night's rest, I'll pop a melatonin also. And Are you thinking about sliding the out 90-foot trash? The trance <laughs> that I am in, I couldn't even think. You don't even want to go brush your teeth. I don't even want to get up to go pee. No. Like, I don't want to get up to do anything. I can't. It, that is, it doesn't make any sense. No, it doesn't. If it was, if it was so, I don't like, I don't know, but it just doesn't make any sense. Phoebe's family is deeply saddened and feels like the police and court system failed them miserably. Her mother said, natural justice is now the only thing we're going to get out of this. Karma will come to whoever has been involved. We just have to be patient. So fast forward to eight years later, a 25 year old woman named Bailey Schneider was found dead in her parents' home in Melbourne, Australia. Similar to Phoebe, she had issues with alcohol and drugs, and her parents were very concerned about her involvement in the Melbourne party scene. A gold chain had been wrapped tightly around her neck, but investigators could not find a hanging point. She was found slumped like next to the kitchen counter. She clearly had poured herself a glass of wine, and so the parents assumed that she had been drinking while they were gone out of the house. And then when they came home, she had a chain wrapped around her neck. You mean a chain like a necklace? or They described it as like a gold cord. Oh. And that she, it was, was she had been as a asphyxiation, but there was no way for, there was no spot for her to hang from. So even though they found this to be very suspicious, Bailey's death was quickly ruled a suicide. Just that morning, Bailey had told her mom that she had broken up with her 51-year-old boyfriend, (gasps) a man that she had been dating for about nine months. Guess who her boyfriend is? No. Anthony Hample. Two women that Anthony dated died of suspicious suicides. Anthony claimed that he wasn't in a serious relationship with Bailey, even though phone records suggested otherwise. They were clearly in a very serious relationship and they had gone on multiple vacations together. Hours before Bailey was found dead, text messages show that the couple had just broken up. She had just left him. Toxicology reports show that Bailey had three times the legal limit of alcohol as well as cocaine in her blood system. Phoebe also had three times the legal amount of alcohol in her system. Despite everything about this being almost identical to Phoebe's death, Bailey's death was not deemed suspicious. It's just because of his dad. I was going to say it's because of the Supreme Court judge. Yeah. Anthony Hample once again got away without ever being considered a suspect. And obviously, I'm going to tell you what I think happened. (laughs) This woman wanted to leave him and he killed her. The same reason he killed his girlfriend years before. Both times he wasn't ruled a suspect because he was working or at an event. So depending on his involvement. also the son of a <laughs> former judge. <laughs> Do you know who my daddy is? <laughs> so depending on his involvement, he is either the luckiest or unluckiest man in the world. And that is the death of Phoebe Hanschuk and Bailey Schneider. Wow. Yeah. What is he doing now? He's fine. Well, I know he's fine. Obviously, he's doing just fine. But it's, like one thing I thought was really interesting was... You know how a lot of, in a lot of cases, people, it's like the women can say like, or that one woman that has been famous for like the husband always did it or the boyfriend always did it. People, who's that one woman? Nan, not Nancy Nan- Grace. Yes, Nancy Grace. Oh. That there's so many articles where they're able to basically claim that someone did something, but not this guy. Every single article protects him so thoroughly 
that it almost made me nervous throwing out my opinion of things, but I was like, honestly, screw it. Every single article was like, we are not suggesting that Antony had anything to do with this murder, but, and they say it numerous times throughout every single source that I used, which is, I've never come across that in any research that I've ever done. And you can tell that his lawyers are on top of everything that his name is attached to. Wow. So he, his whole image and whatever he is doing now has been so clearly protected because of his very obvious involvement in these two murders. Does this mean we're going to get a cease and desist? When this I know. Comes I, out? so I got a little bit worried about that. Oh, should honestly, we do I wonder if we will, because it's one thing to, to present the facts as just facts and let other people form their opinion. But it was pretty crystal clear from the very moment what we I started thought. what you thought. Yeah. The fact that actual news corporations are phrasing their articles in that way. That's yeah. okay. everyone thinks that he did it. Well, everyone thinks that he did it. <laughs> that's not the same thing. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, well, I we hope, shall see. I hope not. It's I'm this is based off of the evidence that has been put out there. And it seems that many have come to the well, same conclusion. And I, yeah. and I know that it's bad for, you know, silly old me in California saying, I know that he did this sure. when he clearly has an alibi. Um, he was at an event or he was at work or this or that. Okay. But both of those deaths can only take a couple minutes. Exactly. So, and um, that's why I stand behind the fact that depending on his involvement, be very careful with saying that. We don't know if he was, but if he was or if he wasn't, he is either the luckiest or unluckiest man in the world. Yeah, I have never come across any news corporation stating that mm-hmm. in an article. That makes no sense. Yeah, I'll send all, I mean, I, I obviously have to send all my sources anyways. Yeah. But you'll see that there's always like a, a one-liner basically saying in like the middle of the article. Yeah, saying we are not suggesting that he had anything to do with this. Well, I guess that's how we're going to end our episode with a disclaimer. We're not suggesting that he did. I'm we just ha- giving you what was told to me <laughs> and what I researched. And then you can base your decision off of that. We're just two lowly girls doing a true You say crime. lonely girl? <laughs> no, I said oh. lowly. I said two lonely girls. <laughs> no, we're not. What's sad and lonely? <laughs> no. Don't be mean to us. No, we're not lonely. <laughs> just lowly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What does lowly even mean? I don't know. You used it. Yeah, I guess I don't know. I've never used it. I was, I thought it was like, oh, please, sir, leave us alone. We're me. (laughs) Help me. I'm poor. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. Anyways, we don't know what we're talking about. If what's his name? Anthony. Anthony, you and your lawyers, if you hear this, we're allowed to have our own opinions. That's so true. First Amendment, correct? Yeah, I wonder if that uh, transfers over to Australia. (laughs) (laughs) What are your your rules over there? What are your laws over there? (laughs) Just don't listen to it. Hey, don't just just plug your ears. (laughs) Anyways, that's my story. Thank you for covering that. You did a really good job. Thanks, Ashley. It was a really interesting story, and I can't believe that I've never come across that. I cannot believe you've never heard of this. Yeah. That's nuts butts to me. Anyways, love you. Love you. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you enjoy listening. We owe everything to the many journalists, authors, filmmakers, psychiatrists, and psychologists whose extensive work and expertise we pulled from to share this episode with you. For all of our detailed source material, please visit our website, thecrimebarpodcast.com. 
If you'd like to see content from today, you can find us on Instagram at Crime Bar Podcast. We really love doing this show, and if you'd like to help the continued creation of it, you can support by donating to our Patreon, which we have linked on our website as well as our Instagram, patreon.com slash crimebarpodcast. This episode was hosted by Ashley Brumley-Johnson and Ana Katerina. We'll see you next week.